Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Good evening. It's great to see you back on a Tuesday night in the Lord's house. I appreciate your faithfulness. Uh, so many of you have been an encouragement to my wife and to me and your comments. It's been a great joy. The week has gone all too fast. I was so excited when uh, Dr. Ball said to me, I had an opportunity tonight to share a little bit uh, tomorrow night about our ministry, so I'll wait and, and do that tomorrow evening and, and uh, tell you our official goodbyes. But uh, what a blessing it's been to be here. We, we love Tri-City, uh, so many friends here in the valley, and it's just a great blessing. Let's take our Bibles tonight and go to Acts chapter 13, if you would. I was kind of chuckling earlier. The folks back in the sound booth who have been uh, uh, doing such a great job in helping us to be heard and for things to be seen, uh, one of the gentlemen was asking me each night the title of the sermons. And the first night, I told him, it's the three-legged stool of evangelism. He said, the second night, what's your title? Well, it's the three-legged stool of discipleship. And last night, he said, what, the three-legged stool of, right, church planting. And he came to me tonight, and he said, okay, there are only three legs on the uh, the stool. What is your title tonight? And I said, well, it's the three-legged stool of ascending church. Because in reality, evangelism and discipleship and church planting doesn't just happen by itself. It doesn't happen in the absence of of an institution that Jesus Christ died for called the church. And so tonight we're going to be putting it all together and we're going to be talking about the sending church of the local missionary who goes out and evangelizes and disciples and plants churches. So we're doing that tonight in Acts chapter 13. So let's read the first five verses and then we will again pray for the service tonight. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas that was called uh, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Here you have five men at Antioch, this church that we'll be talking about tonight, and most Bible scholars agree that these were the five leaders we would today call them. Uh, pastors of this little baby church at Antioch. One Bible commentator said in this listing of five that Barnabas was the senior pastor and Paul was the youth pastor. And his conclusion was Barnabas was senior pastor because he's first on the church letterhead and Paul is last on the church letterhead and that's where you always put the youth pastor. Well, I don't know that you can prove that from the scriptures. But nonetheless, these five men, we know the story of Barnabas and his leadership and how he brought Paul or Saul of Tarsus, and and Paul became a really key part of the church. So they're ministering at Antioch. As they ministered to the Lord, verse 2, and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to be their minister. Let's pray as we open the text tonight. 
Father, I pray that you would give wisdom and understanding to your people tonight in this very, very critical matter of the sending church of the missionary. And Father, that you would help us tonight to be drawn in love to the Savior and to be motivated to sacrifice and to give our lives for the work of the gospel around the world. Father, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes it is easy to get confused and for that confusion to lead to misdirected actions. A true story, in the mid-1960s, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was dictating a letter for his secretary to type. I don't know, I read the story in his biography, and I'm not sure, it it wasn't his long-term secretary. Many of you know his story that was with him for decades. I think this lady was filling in somewhat temporarily. And anyway, he dictated the letter, and she typed it up and put it on his desk. But, but Hoover had a lot of eccentricities, and one of those was he did not like uh, the text of a letter to go too far into the margins. So she had typed it way too far into the margins. He was upset. He took a black felt-tip pen and wrote across the letter, retype, watch the borders. Well, she was confused, and it led to misdirected action. She retyped the letter and wrote at the bottom, watch the borders, and she sent it to all the agents on the Canadian and the Mexican border, and they watched the borders. Now, that true story uh, is somewhat humorous, but folks, the reality of the confusion that God's people have about this matter of missions is not a humorous story. We saw the other day when I began this series that uh, there's a lot of confusion about even what missions is. You remember the story of the Oklahoma cowboy going down to Haiti. And because of that, we've looked for clarification at what missions is. It is evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. But the confusion doesn't just exist with what missions is. Confusion exists with the relationship of the sending church to the missionary. You know, we at Baptist World Mission understand that we do not send missionaries. Local churches send missionaries. But sometimes young people don't quite get that. On more than one occasion visiting Christian colleges, I've had young people come up to me and say, God has called me to the mission field, and I would love to go with Baptist World Mission. And I say to them, well, what does your pastor think about that? And they say something like, well, I've never talked to my pastor about that. And that young person is then instructed, I hope graciously, that the church is the one that sends the missionary. And when we have confusion over that, there is misdirected action. But we do not have to have confusion because God's Word gives us the answer. I pointed out on Sunday that the book of Acts is the first volume of church history. We began there Sunday morning. It's the link between the Gospels and the Epistles, and it gives us the answer for this matter of New Testament missions. Now, in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, uh, the church at Jerusalem is really the focal point, and Peter is Uh, other than the Holy Spirit, of course, is the main character. But when we come to Acts chapter 13, there has been a transition. There are some new guys on the block. Their names are Barnabas and Saul. And now from Acts 13 to the rest of the end of the book, it will be Paul and missions ministry that will be the focus of the book out of the church at Antioch. 
So this is a very, very important text as we see Christianity spreading into all the world through the first missionary sending church and the first two full-time vocational missionaries. So tonight I want us to look at this text and consider the practice of the sending church, the nature of the sending church, and answer some questions about what your role is here at Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. First of all, I want you to see tonight that the local church, the sending church, is responsible to be listening for the Spirit's call. It says in verse 2 that as they minister to the Lord, these five pastors, and included in that word they, we believe, is the church itself, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said to the church, and, and it's obvious from the context that he's speaking to the church, he said to the church, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Now notice at the end of verse 2, it's very clear that God has already called Paul and Barnabas. We don't know how that happened. Was it in their personal devotions? Uh, was one of them preaching and the other one was called and then that one was preaching and the other one was called in the service? But to this point, it has been kept to themselves. God has called them and they have surrendered to that call. But apparently the church doesn't know yet. Because the Spirit of God comes and says to the church, I have called them, now you send them. So what we have here actually is a dual call. We have the call of Paul and Barnabas to full-time vocational missions, but we have the call from God to the church to send them. And both calls are very significant. So we see that the church here was so spiritually attuned to the voice of God, that the people did not fail to hear the voice of God when God spoke. So let me ask you tonight, if God wants to call you individually to full-time vocational missions, is your ear in tune with the voice of God? As a corporate body, if God wants to call someone from your congregation into full-time vocational missions, are you as a church body in tune with the Spirit of God? This early church was. And from them, we can learn that the local church is responsible to be listening for the Spirit's call. The birthplace of this New Testament outreach was a Spirit-filled church. Look at verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church... God did not begin missions in a Bible college. God did not begin missions in an individual family. God began missions in the New Testament church in Acts chapter 13. And that's very important. But it wasn't just any kind of a church. It was a spirit-filled church. It was a church that was listening to the Lord. It was a church that was serving the Lord. We'll see that in a moment. But they were spirit-filled, and because they were spirit-filled and spirit-led and spirit-empowered, they heard the voice of God. But folks, we have a problem in our land today. There are so many flesh-dominated churches that those churches are not hearing the voice of God. 
We have so many flesh-dominated Christians today in America, very generally speaking, that those people are not hearing the voice of God. You know, the churches in our land today that are, are rocking out in their Sunday services and they're having their, their beer parties and, and, and they're totally entertainment-driven, they talk a lot about missions, but they really are not sending people to evangelize, make disciples, and plant churches. It's not happening. Because flesh-dominated churches do not hear the voice of God. Can I say it this way? Carnality never produces spirituality. It can't. You can't lift someone higher spiritually than you are yourself. So this church was a spirit-filled church, and because of it, God spoke to them, and they heard, and God used them in the planting of New Testament churches all through Asia Minor. So number one, the, the, the church, the birthplace of the New Testament mission was a spirit-filled church. But number two, the training ground for New Testament missions was a serving church. Look at verse two. As they ministered to the Lord, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. This word ministered is a Greek word that in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, this word was used for the work of the high priest in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. It is a word that speaks of the highest service to God. And they ministered in the church. Now, it's very interesting to me that this word encompasses all kinds of service. You know, somewhere tonight, I assume, Pastor, that somebody is changing diapers. I mean, I'm guessing that's happening somewhere. I thankfully am not involved in it. I thankfully am not uh, having to look at it tonight. But somewhere there are people serving the Lord in the nursery. You know, there are others working with the children and doing other things. You know, and, and there's multitude of areas of service going on in this church. Did you know those things that I just described fall within this concept of ministering? So can I make a, 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 a logical conclusion? If a lady in the nursery tonight is changing a diaper and she's meeting the conditions of this text, she is doing service to God like the priest on the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament uh, Day of Atonement. It's, it's the same. It's the same Greek word. So what is the condition? Look at it. It says, as they ministered to the Lord. You know, if you're an usher in the church tonight, uh, Brother Dave came down the aisle here, uh, my friend, and, and he was doing the ushering, and I'm, I'm proud of him for doing that. If, if, uh, if Dave took the offering tonight simply because pastor said, Dave, you've got to help take the offering, that's not done to the Lord. But if Dave recognized and the other men recognized we are serving Jesus Christ and in their hearts, though they may not have every time consciously thought this, but in their hearts they're doing it because they love the Lord. That's like work in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement in taking the offering. You know, preachers need to remember that they're preaching to the Lord. You know who my number one listener in the congregation is tonight? It's Jesus Christ. And what I say had better please him or else I have failed in my responsibility tonight in ministering. 
So as these people ministered in service to the church, they were doing it for the Lord. It was like service in the Holy of Holies. They were faithful in the local church, and God said, there are two guys down there at Antioch that I want in my sovereignty to choose to take out of the local church service where they're faithfully serving, and I want to put them in another people group, in another location where they'll do the same thing, evangelizing, making disciples, and planting churches. And God called them, and God called the church to send them. So the training ground for New Testament outreach was a serving church. God calls individuals to broader opportunities of ministry after they have been faithful in their local church. And then thirdly, the power behind New Testament missions was a seeking church. It says in verse 2, they ministered to the Lord and fasted. This word fasted most commonly is associated with uh, going without food uh, for the purpose of prayer, and I think that's a pretty good description of it. But actually, fasting can involve uh, giving up other things uh, for the purpose of spending time with the Lord and praying. So however you define the word fasting, these people gave up normal things in their life for the purpose of spending time in prayer with God. And the reality is that prayer is the lifeline of the New Testament missionary. We'll say more about it later. So what do we discover about this church? This church was spiritual, it was serving, and it was seeking the Lord, and it was that kind of a church that heard the voice of God when God spoke. Now, that's really important for us to understand because God does call missionaries. It's very clear. If, if you do not believe in a personal call of the missionary in, in Acts 13, then I, I really can't help you with that. But the Scripture's clear. God calls missionaries. But it's also clear He calls churches to send them. And so that's really important as a basis of accountability. For example, each of us here tonight need to be listening to the voice of God if God wants us to surrender to full-time vocational ministry. And maybe God is calling someone to do that. But also, if someone is called from your church, you as a church body need to be sensitive to whether or not you should send that person. You know, I've actually been in services where there were people uh, who uh, came and, and they weren't regular in the church, they weren't faithful to the church, and they heard a missionary challenge or they saw a presentation and their heart was touched, and they came forward and said, Pastor, I want to be a missionary. They didn't even come to church regularly. They didn't tithe. They weren't even members of the local assembly. The church has a responsibility for evaluating who is sent from the church to the field, we are to lay hands suddenly on no man. There are requirements to be met. So the church is to hear the voice of God when the missionary is say, person is saying, I want to be a missionary. In our Baptist circles today, we do something that's a little bit different and unique from the New Testament uh, exactly, and that is we often have missionaries from other churches uh, of like faith and practice that come in and present their work to us, and they appeal to us for prayer and financial support, how do you know which missionaries you should support? How do you know which ones you should partner with? You know, back when I was a young preacher, I had a friend in college who I greatly loved as a brother in Christ. He was a big man on campus. He was, he was a really good speaker. He had, he had a really persuasive way about him, 
And uh, I decided, I was a brand new pastor, I was 32 years of age in a wonderful church in North Carolina, and he was the first missionary I had in. And we instituted an approach to taking on missionaries that really put the burden on the church to pray and decide which missionaries we took on. So this guy came and he presented his work and I said, I thought to myself, boy, they're going to take him on. He's going to be great. And it didn't work. Nobody seemed to take it on, want to take him on. And I said to Tish, now, have you prayed about it? Yes, they'd prayed about it. We just don't feel like that we should take him on. And I was disappointed. Did you know within six months he had left his wife and ended his ministry and his marriage and his family? And God used a praying church who was seeking the Lord to protect a really dumb young preacher who was favoring one of his friends for the ministry. Folks, God uses his church that listens to him in prayer and seeking him. So number one, the local church that is a sending church must be listening to the Spirit's call. Number two, that church is to be co-laboring in the Spirit's commission. Look at verse 3, it says, And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So who sent the missionary in verse 3? Somebody tell me. Who sent the missionary? The church. Well, look at verse 4. It says, so they, the missionaries, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost. In verse 4, who sent the missionaries? The Holy Ghost did. You say contradiction? No. When the church and the Holy Spirit are on the same page, they together send the missionary. And we have in this context the concept of commissioning. Now, we use the word commission. Uh, We talk about the Great Commission. Uh, We talk about missionaries, which is the same root, and we often don't think about what the word even means and where it comes from. The word commission in the English language actually uh, finds its roots in the armed forces. In the armed forces, there is something called a commissioned officer, and it goes something like this. The Uh, The armed forces who are the authority, the government, the leadership, our our president and those in charge uh, choose certain men and they appoint them to a position. They're going to commission them. They choose them for a position. It could be they're going to be a colonel, they're going to be uh, a major, whatever, and that person goes through a certain amount of training. They usually begin as lieutenants. But they go through a certain amount of training, and when the training is complete, they have a service whereby that person is set apart as a commissioned officer. That's the idea of commissioning. So that word has the idea of a supreme authority, training, and a responsibility given by the supreme authority. And that is exactly what is in view in this passage. That's why we use the word. So the the authority is the Lord himself... And he tells the church to send the missionary. The church does the training. And then once that person is trained, they assume their responsibility and they have a commissioning service. And it's found in verse 3. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, we do commissioning most Baptist churches in a certain way, and so I'm following that pattern tonight, which is found in our text right here. Maybe you do it a little differently, and that's fine. But I just want to appeal to you that the church has a responsibility to be partnering with the Lord in the commissioning of the missionary out of your church. 
So in commissioning, what do we do? We are personally identifying with those called by the laying on of hands. When I was pastoring in North Carolina in that community, we had several people called out of our church into full-time vocational missions, and when they were prepared and ready to go, uh, they came forward in a service. We had the pastors and the deacons gather around, and we had them kneel and face the congregation, and we would have a ceremony, a laying on of hands. Now you say, what does that represent? Does that represent apostolic power being given to them? No. It is a symbol of the extension of the church. Our hands are placed upon them. They become our hands. Uh, Their eyes become our eyes. It's identification with them. It is authorization of them. It It is partnering with them. It's not mystical. It's not spooky. It's not apostolically weird in any way. It's simply a public recognition that we are sending them. So that is done personally in the laying on of hands. In commissioning, we are to prayerfully intercede for those called. It says again, verse 3, they are fasting and praying again. In verse 2, they're fasting and praying. In verse 3, they're fasting and praying. Guess what? As you go through the book of Acts, guess what they're doing? They're fasting and praying. This is a fitting prelude to continued intercession at the throne of grace. Did you know that, that a praying church at home really is the secret of the victory of the missionary on the field. We have had missionaries fail with Baptist World Mission, and they have come home many times with their heads hanging and their proverbial tails between their legs. And I have sometimes wondered, did the missionary fail or did their churches fail? Samuel said in the Old Testament to Israel, God forbid that I would sin against you in failing to pray for you. And folks, I say it in, in conviction to my own heart. We do not pray enough for our missionaries. A praying church at home is the secret of the victory of their missionaries. So when you lay hands on them in a commissioning service and you pray with them, that's got to be the prelude to your intercession for them throughout the years at the throne of grace for their service for Christ. And then in commissioning, we are practically enabling those called. Look again at verse 3. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, this word sent is very interesting. Uh, In the Greek language, there, of course, is classical Greek. There's Koine Greek of the New Testament. uh, And uh, those are distinct, but there is some overlap. But this word, especially in the classical Greek, has some interesting nuances. and, And I'll give you the meaning. The word sent can literally be translated released. And so we could read this passage, and when they had laid their hands on them, they released them. And in the classical Greek language, I am told from those who know it far better than I, there were two concepts of what this word release meant. This word meant release from financial burdens and release from responsibilities. And I think it has a great application for the sending of a missionary. You mentioned Brother James uh, used to be the IT guy here. You know, when a missionary is called by God and they leave their local church and they go to another place, another people group, another language, another location, they've just left a position that has been critical to that church. And if the people of that church do not step up to the plate 
and fill that role that's been vacated by the missionary, it makes it very hard for the missionary to have a freedom to go because he knows he's leaving a hole back at his church. Think about it. Barnabas is the senior pastor. Can I, without argumentation, say Paul is the youth pastor? And these two guys have been a key at Antioch, this baby church 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and now they're leaving. Who's going to be the senior pastor? Who's going to fill Paul's shoes? If people do not step up to the plate, Paul and Barnabas are going to be conflicted. But they are being released by the church from those responsibilities with joy and blessing. And the people step up to the plate. And can I say it reverently? You would have looked at the church at Antioch and you would never have known that Barnabas and Paul were gone because they assumed their responsibilities. That's what it means to sin. But it also has the idea of releasing them from financial burden. In other words, the church in the beginning took on the financial responsibility of Paul and Barnabas so they could do the work of the ministry. Now, we don't know exactly how it happened, but later on, it's obvious from Paul's comments that there are other churches that support him as well. So we don't know exactly all that that happened, but part of sending is financially supporting. They released them. They commissioned them. So the churches uh, laid hands on them. They identified with them. They prayed for them. And they enabled them to go by sending them. And it's called commissioning. Charles Bridges, in his book, The Christian Ministry, said that there is a tragedy that some churches are getting away from commissioning their missionaries. He said, a commission is received by the church according to the sacred and primitive order. In other words, Bridges was arguing that, folks, this is how the New Testament church did it, and we need to do it the same today. Churches send missionaries, and I agree totally with him. So number one, we're to be listening to the Spirit's call. We're to be co-laboring in the Spirit's commission. And then thirdly, the local or the sending church is responsible, responsible to be looking for the Spirit's accomplishments. Look at verse 4 and 5. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to be their minister. So they end up going to the island of Cyprus, where Barnabas was originally from, and there they are ministering. What we have in chapter 13 and 14 is the first missionary journey on the island of Cyprus, and we have a lot of great things happening. I mean, God, God, God did amazing things. Did you know Sergius Paulus got saved? And he was the proconsul for Rome on the island of Cyprus. You say, what's a proconsul? Pontius Pilate. Folks, think about the Pontius Pilate of the island of the Cyprus was born again and became a New Testament believer. That is absolutely amazing on the first missionary journey. God did some amazing things. So we rejoice uh, in, in what happened on that first missionary journey. And look at what happened at the end of chapter 14. Let's read verses 27 and 28. So the first missionary journey is over. It says, and, and they're coming back to Antioch, verse 26, and thence they sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. And when they were come to the church at Antioch, and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them, 
and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles, and there they abode long time with the disciples. Now, there are a lot of really important principles here in these three verses. Number one is you can't abide long with the home church if you've got 150 supporting churches that you've got to go to, okay? So there's an argument here for a localized, limited amount of support, which is a whole other topic. But the thing I want to focus on in this text is that at the end of the first missionary journey, they came back and they reported to the church what God had done. We call that today furlough. There are a lot of people in churches that I'm in who argue missionaries should not come home on furlough. We have technology. They can just report uh, via uh, Zoom or by sending a video. They don't need to spend all of that money every four to six years coming home. Yeah, they do because it's about a relationship. It's about accountability. It's about face-to-face communication. It's about encouragement. It's about abiding long time with your home church. Folks, furlough is biblical, okay? And what's interesting to me in these two chapters, it gives us in these two chapters three things that we should be looking for as a sending church when a missionary comes home to evaluate whether or not that missionary has done what we've sent them to do. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you know, Brother James, where are you? Is he in here tonight or did he go out? James, okay, I was going to pick. I won't pick on him if he's not in here. Oh, he's back there, yeah. Brother James... How does Tri-City Baptist Church know that you're not sitting in your tower sipping lemonade every day? Okay, good, good. You know, I mean, how far is it to Hong Kong from here? 15 hours. We're talking 10,000 miles? About 10,000 miles. I mean, he's 10,000 miles away And you guys are responsible to God for evaluating if he is doing what you have sent him to do. How are you going to do that? Now, in most independent Baptist churches, there is one beta test for whether or not a missionary is doing the work of missions. And that is how many people profess to get saved. I mean, we read prayer letters, oh, this guy did a great job. He had a hundred people get saved this month. And that guy over there, he hasn't had anybody saved in two years. He's not a very good missionary. Did you know that is unbiblical? As a matter of fact, that is not at all mentioned in this text. Because, folks, we can't save anybody. It is God who saves the sinner. All we are to do is to be faithful. So we can't evaluate a missionary based upon how many people make professions of faith. Even from the standpoint of logic, there are some countries like the Philippines where the gospel has effectively been preached for at least a couple of generations, and there's a lot of fruit coming out of of the Philippines and Brazil. But there are countries like the former Soviet bloc countries where the gospel has not been until recently, and there's not as much fruit. And to compare missionaries based on such an unbiblical basis is folly. So if that's the case, how do we evaluate if a missionary is doing the work that God has sent him to do and that we have commissioned him to do? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. 
There are three criterion from the first missionary journey. Now there's some more later on as the the epistles are developed, but in, in the beginning of the church, there were three things they were looking for, and I think it's very important. Number one, they were holding the missionary accountable for proclaiming the Word of God. Look at verse 5, it says in chapter 13, and when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Look at verses 48 and 49 of the same chapter. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believe, and the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. Folks, we need to hold missionaries responsible for faithfully proclaiming the word of God. And that involves evangelism and discipleship and leadership training, the whole package. Missionaries must be giving the Word of God. When I came with Baptist World now almost 15 years ago as the executive director, one of our first assignments was to go to Europe for the European fellowship of our missionaries. We have about 60 missionaries in Europe, and and they manage every year their own missionary camp for a week. They rent a facility. They go. They run the program. They invite the speaker. So they invited the new executive director. Some of them didn't know us real well, and so we went, and we had a wonderful time. In that service, there was a young couple, and I may have alluded to it on Sunday, uh, but a young couple that had gone to Dresden, Germany, former Soviet bloc, and they had been there seven years, and nobody had been saved. And they were very discouraged, and they were wondering, did God call us? And so that week, I made a point of saying that if you go as a God-called missionary to the country that he calls you to go to and you spend a lifetime faithfully declaring the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ and nobody gets saved, you are an effective, faithful missionary because you're not the person that saves anybody to begin with. I said, but the fact is that won't happen. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So I say, if you're faithful in proclaiming the word, eventually people will be saved and eventually Christ will build his church. And they got encouraged from that. They went back to Dresden. And now 15 years later in Dresden, Germany, there is a vital New Testament church calling their own pastor because the missionaries were faithful in proclaiming the word of God. So, folks, we are to hold them accountable for publishing the Word of God. You know, it's interesting to me, we hold them accountable for proclaiming the Word of God in their community. Should we hold them accountable for something that we don't do at home? What would that be called? Hypocrisy. So we hold them accountable for proclaiming the Word of God. Number two, uh, how do we evaluate a missionary? How do we evaluate missionary letters? Well, what are they doing to get the Word of God out? Number two, are they standing against error? That's the second area that we hold them accountable. Look at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 13. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name was by interpretation, withstood them seeking to turn away Sergius Paulus from the faith. Thankfully, he wasn't successful. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on Elymas and said, O fool of all subtly and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Paul wasn't very gracious with Elymas, was he? He called him what he was, and he stood against error. 
Can I say it this way? The missionary is called to evangelize, and when people get saved, to make disciples. And when something is seeking to turn people away from faith and destroy disciples, if you're God's man, you stand against it. And folks, that's why as churches in America today, we need to stand against the carnality of our day. We need to stand against the worldliness and, and, and the materialism of our day because, folks, that will destroy disciples. And we need to hold the missionary accountable for standing against error. But then thirdly, and we're almost done, we are to evaluate the missionary not just on proclaiming the Word of God and standing against error, but also being willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. Look at chapter 13, verses 50 and 51. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. So the missionaries were suffering for the sake of Christ. They were being persecuted. And we need to hold the missionaries accountable for them to be willing to suffer. You know, folks, that's a hard thing to think about. I mean, today, Matt Utley, who was saved under our ministry in South Bend, Indiana, when I was his pastor, uh, he's like a son to me. I love him. Uh, He got on a plane today to go to Tajikistan and uh, will be there sometime probably tomorrow. And to think about him taking his wonderfully sweet wife and those cute little babies and going to that place and suffering for the name of Christ, that's pretty hard on my heart. And yet we have got to expect them to be willing to do that because they're entering into the suffering of Christ. Jesus said, marvel not if they hate you. They hated me. You're not greater than your Lord. You need to be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. Paul, I've chosen you to be a vessel unto my name. And I'll tell you, Paul, how many things you will suffer for my name's sake. That's hard for us to swallow sometimes. But it's part of New Testament missions accountability for being willing to suffer. Now let me go down a rabbit trail, and your pastor, I think, will, will appreciate this as well as a board member of BWM. You know, we at BWM, we, we have a, a tension, a struggle with this thing called emergency evacuation. I mean, when do you pull a missionary off the field when it is dangerous, and when do you have them stay on the field when it's dangerous? I mean, after all, in the New Testament, we have emergency evacuation when Paul was a new Christian. You remember at Damascus? They were going to kill him, and they lowered him over the wall in a basket. That is called an emergency evacuation. (laughs) But Paul stood at Lystra, and he allowed them to stone him and leave him for dead. So how do you know when it's time to leave and when it's time to stay? How do you know when it's time to preserve the missionary's life and when it's time for him to identify with the people in their suffering? The answer really goes back to our first point. We need to be hearing the voice of God. Folks, there is no easy answer. All I can say is that your church better be on praying ground if the Utleys get into that kind of circumstance, and you'd better lay hold of God, and your pastor had better have the mind of God in knowing how to counsel counsel, uh, Matt and Tanya, whether they stay or they come home because their lives may depend upon it.
you'd better be on praying ground. So, Pastor, can I, can I have a church vote tonight? It's not binding. It has nothing to do with money, okay? Well, it does have something to do with money, okay. Uh, how many of you would raise your hand tonight and say, I believe that biblically the missionary should be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ? Would you raise your hand? You believe that that's taught biblically. Okay, how many of you would say then, if that is true and we hold the missionary accountable for being willing to suffer, how many of you say that the church should be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the missionary? I mean, you know, I hear sometimes in churches people complaining about all this money we're sending to those missionaries as they hold their Starbucks cup in their hand. Now, I can say that because I don't like Starbucks. I like Dutch Brothers, okay? (laughs) But, folks, we have this, we have forgotten sometimes that God has called us into a partnership, and the missionary is the extension of the church. And if we expect them to suffer, we need to be willing to suffer in the will of God for the sake of the gospel around the world. So how do we evaluate missionaries? Are they faithfully proclaiming the Word of God? Are they standing against error? And are they willing to bear the reproach of Christ when it's time to do that? And folks, we enter into that with them, and that's how we decide if they're being faithful. Now, my time is gone. I want to conclude tonight with this question. There is a three-legged stool, evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Are you committed to that? Are you committed to that with your life, both at home and abroad? Are you willing to go here with the gospel and make disciples in this church and see churches planted in the valley? And are you willing to sacrifice and to send missionaries that God calls out of your church and to provide the accountability structure that will help them to do the work that God has for them? Are you committed to the three-legged stool? Really, the answer is, are you committed to Jesus Christ? Because it's his program. It's all about him. Let's pray together.